Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is David Baker. David is a biochemistry professor at the University of Washington, a Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator, and the director of the Institute for Protein Design at the University of Washington. Just like the name suggests, this institute works on designing proteins with special properties. Sometimes these proteins are designed on computers, from scratch, with what researchers think are optimal characteristics for therapeutics or industrial enzymes. Often, these characteristics aren't found anywhere in nature. This is heady stuff. Baker's group is creating an entirely new field of chemistry, in the words of one Caltech scientist. Another of Baker's colleagues at the University of Washington, Jay Shindure, has said this institute is working on things scientists will be talking about a hundred years from now. A handful of startups have already come out of the Baker lab. In this episode, we talk about the factors that have given rise to this opportunity in de novo protein design. We also talk about Baker's work habits and management style and how he's had to adapt over time as this work has gained momentum and gone in a lot of different directions. He's a fascinating guy, and his story will resonate for anyone who aspires to be a change maker in academia or industry. Now, before we start the episode, I'd like to tell you about the sponsor of the long run. Precision Nanosystems is lowering the barriers to developing gene and advanced therapies. Precision Nanosystems is a global leader in technology and solutions for developing RNA, DNA, CRISPR, and small molecule drugs, rapidly taking ideas to patients. In working with over 100 biopharmaceutical companies globally, Precision Nanosystems' expertise and proprietary technology is at the heart of many of the leading gene therapies under development today. Precision Nanosystems' nanomedicine development and manufacturing platform and reagents provide outstanding reducibility, versatility, and scalability with an intuitive workflow that requires no prior expertise. Precision Nanosystems can partner with you to bring your programs to patients successfully. To learn more, please visit www.precisionnanosystems.com. And are you a marquee service provider eager to get your name out in front of the biotech leaders who listen to the Long Run Podcast? Stephanie Barnes can tell you about sponsorship opportunities. Find her on the contact page on TimmermanReport.com. And if you haven't already, now is a good time to subscribe to Timmerman Report. Before you do, take a look at the testimonials page. You'll see industry leaders who have subscribed since the beginning in 2015. As Bob Nelson of Arch Venture Partners put it, quote, Timmerman is always ahead of the game, end quote. So what are you waiting for? Go to TimmermanReport.com and hit the green button that says subscribe. Groups that meet certain conditions are eligible for discounts. Ask me, Luke at TimmermanReport.com. Now, please join me and David Baker on the long run. So here I am at the Institute for Protein Design at the University of Washington with David Baker, professor of biochemistry and the director of this uh, interesting institute at the university. Welcome, David, to the long run. Thank you. 
So I noticed on my way in here, David, that uh, I didn't walk through a wet lab. I walked through a computer lab, basically. And I think we can talk about both elements of what you do and how they come together. And they've come together in a confluence over the years in a really interesting way to designing new proteins from scratch. For listeners who are not super familiar with this, I'll just say I'm really excited to have you here because about a year ago, I organized an event with where Jay Shindure, a professor of genome sciences here, was one of the speakers. And he said that the a uh, hundred years from now, science historians are going to look back at what's going on here at this lab as the most interesting and impactful, important thing that any of us are doing now in science. So there's that. I've also you've also gotten just a lot of press lately. I think other people are picking up on this. I saw Raymond Deshays, former Caltech biologist, quoted as saying, "You're creating a whole new field of chemistry." No pressure here. <laughs> I'd like to just start off with a little bit on of background on who you are and how you came to this position where you are now. So why don't you just start me off? I know you're a Seattle boy. What did your parents do for a living? Yeah, so my parents both worked at the UW. They were professors in geophysics and physics. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went to, uh, went to Seattle Public School. I went to Garfield High School uh, and I went to college at Harvard uh, where I started off as a social studies major, um, then got interested in philosophy in my last year, decided I wanted to do something substantive. So I um, switched to biology. Then, Wait a second. Now you're you um, you're the child of scientists, but you weren't really interested in science as a kid. No, I wasn't. Uh, what was going on there? Um, let's see. I, it's it's always hard to say what makes you interested in things, but um, but I, uh, I I really got interested in science once I started uh, doing it myself uh, in in graduate school. Um, in my last year in college, I took a developmental biology class and. Uh, neurobiology class and I thought the brain and development were just totally cool and then when I got to graduate school it seemed like uh, those things were pretty complicated so I wanted to work on something simpler so I worked with uh, Randy Sheckman on how proteins get localized within cells and then when I finished my PhD I wanted to get simpler still and so I wanted to understand how um, you know how proteins fold and I did my postdoctoral work uh, at UCSF uh, focusing more on, on some interesting cases of um, protein folding from the experimental point of view. Okay, let's, we'll, we'll get there in a second, but where did the spark come from for you around biology? You say this was back at like undergraduate? It was back uh, undergraduate. at Harvard. It was really, yeah, that's right. It was really when I took um, these couple of biology classes in my senior year that I got really excited about, about it. There was um, a book that actually came out uh, that many people read at that era called Molecular Biology of the Cell, which had all these beautiful pictures of all these super cool things that go on inside cells. And that got me really intrigued. Not of the gene, of the cell. Of the cell, yeah. This would have been early 80s? This would have been mid 80s? Uh, uh, let's see, this is probably 83, 84. Okay, okay. So cells. Yeah. Um, this was not, I mean, your parents didn't do this sort of thing. Yeah. Biology, though, I mean, this was. Pre-human genome project, right? Um, right. Not, uh, but but it, it just. It, what about the problem struck you as as interesting? Let's see. Um, well, so much was being discovered so fast compared to what I had been studying. You know, social studies and philosophy were reading books from a hundred years earlier, and it was devolving more and more into talk. Whereas in biology, new things were being learned right and left, and um, 
and uh, there were still really good open problems. The ones that were intriguing me then, like I said, were the problems of development and 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 function of the brain. Um, those are still good problems, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it, there was just there were there was stuff to discover and new frontiers. So you go off to graduate school at Berkeley. Yes. Uh, biochemistry. Uh, with, yes. And this was with Randy Sheckman yes. right away. Right. Okay, so what was he working on in those days, and what did you really sink your teeth into? Um, let's see. Well, uh, when I got to graduate school, like I said, I was interested in these big problems. Uh, but it's, it seemed that the, the approaches that uh, were used at the time to get at them, I, I didn't see a lot that I could really um, uh, do within the timeline of a PhD, whereas it seemed like in... Um, in, in uh, Randy's lab, there were problems that, that I could solve in the time frame I had. So what I did in Randy's lab was uh, to develop a way of, of measuring uh, protein transport from location to location within um, cell-free extracts. And they had already identified a number of genes that were important. And so that then enabled sort of putting everything together to figure out what the mechanism was. After that, I thought I would uh, just learn a little bit of structural biology, then come back to that problem because it was clear that at some point it was going to be going to become a question of protein mechanism and structure. Um, but when I started my postdoc at UCSF in the laboratory of David Agard, on the first day there was a computer terminal on my desk, and so I asked what it was for, and David said computing. So I had to kind of figure out what that was. All through graduate school, I had ridiculed anyone who sat at a computer and did anything <laughs> as it being as being a total waste of time. Uh, but that then changed as I. Um, now, why was it a waste of time in your mind? Well, I think the things that people were doing on computers, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just like to give everyone a hard time. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> it would, um, but what you're actually trying to look at and trying to measure was something that was really hard to measure then yeah. and, and now. Yeah, that's uh, right. That's uh, right. The, the physical, the, the physics of what's going on in a live cell, yeah. in, a, in a living organism. Right, and it's like, very complicated. Right, so then what, what happened... Um, uh, when I started off in, in David's lab, I started off looking at um, uh, doing experiments on, on um, some, a very complicated case of protein folding. Uh, but then I um, sort of, um, I, I picked up a lot, of, a lot of the computational things, started thinking about computational models of folding. I didn't really have chance too much to develop that as a postdoc, but when I started my faculty position here uh, 25 years ago, maybe a little bit more now, uh, that was really what I decided to focus on. So. We, um, so I, I tried to focus on experimentally in the lab, really the simplest possible cases of protein folding, really simple proteins. And what fascinated me was sort of the whole process of biological self-organization. Like you were saying, in principle, all of biology is a physics or chemistry problem, but it's so complicated, you can't really take it apart. But in protein folding, you know, you go from this amino acid sequence to three-dimensional structure, and you have, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's what distinguishes um, inanimate life, um, you know, inorganic stuff, You'd, if you had a long polymer, it would just be completely random. But in nature, these things fold up to very precise three-dimensional structures. So I was really fascinated as, in this problem as the simplest possible case of biological self-organization. Classic hard problem. How do you predict a protein's fold? Because that uh, determines its function. Yeah. And, and there was so much excitement around the underlying code, the DNA, yeah. the RNA, that that would you know, provide us the the recipe, the, the roadmap for that, but it's not so simple. Right, right. Yeah, so in fact, what happened at that point is we started off doing experiments on protein folding on these really simple systems, and we started getting a picture of how proteins actually fold. Then, then at that point, um, 
we started developing this computer program called Rosetta, which we've been working on ever since, uh, which sort of embodied the rules that we learned or principles we learned from studying protein folding experimentally. And there we were doing exactly what you were describing, trying to go from amino acid sequence to three-dimensional structure. Well, wait a second. Let's come back to this. So you're not, we're still um, in your, your graduate student postdoc time. Yeah. You're protein folding is yeah. like this big, hard problem. And this seems to be like a, a, this was driving your curiosity. Yeah, well, in fact, you, it's... Your, it, your career isn't one of these where you just make one great discovery as a graduate student and kind of ride that the rest right, of your right. life. It's like you start with this really hard problem. And if you figured out even one protein, then there's just this whole other range of, yeah. of proteins in Mother Nature that you, that you can't just like automatically assume everything will fall into place. Right, right. Now, just to be clear, even though um, I, had, I learned of the protein folding problem, um, even as an undergraduate in the biochemistry class I took when I was a senior, um, and it seemed interesting. I remember asking that we had to do a class, we had to write a paper for class. And I said, well, maybe I'll, propose, I'll write something about this protein folding problem. He said, no, 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 don't do it. It's impossible. Um, so I didn't really come back to that problem again, seriously, until I was a, uh, until I started my faculty position here. Okay. So it was quite a few years later. So you came back to the faculty, University of Washington. What year was this? That was the very end of 93. Okay. End of 93. And, um, and your wife is a scientist yeah, here as well. Also, so we both came back together. So we both uh, uh, we were very lucky to both get um, faculty positions in the biochemistry department. And so, you know, you're a Seattle guy and, you know, parents were here, you knew people. Um, was there anything else about the place that made this a good place for you to embark on the research agenda you had in mind? Yeah, I thought that um, I thought that uh, the, the department, the university was very supportive, that they would let me pursue the ideas I wanted to pursue. Um, I love Seattle. I like the mountains. I like hiking and skiing. That was a big draw. We had small kids at the time, and uh, and uh, it was very nice that my parents were here. So it was a constellation of sort of university, family, um, you know, greater mountain, greater environment, uh, outdoor stuff. And what was your 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 uh, driving agenda from the beginning? What what were you trying to solve? Well, that was really the time when I decided to focus on understanding the fundamental principles of protein folding. It's when I started here. Um, again, uh, in fact, the lab opened at the beginning of '94, and that was really the, that's what I proposed in my in my um, job post. I was going to focus figure out protein folding, and the way I proposed to do it was to take very small naturally occurring proteins and really figure out how sequence determined the structure. And that was, and the way that I had proposed to do it, which is what we set out, was to make um, variants of these proteins with dramatically different amino acid sequences um, and then use those variants to figure out the code that you were referring to. So you'd start with the protein and make iteration and work yeah. backwards. That's right. You start with the naturally occurring proteins and you try and figure out how the sequence encodes the structure. Okay, so this, um, I, I would imagine you're doing it kind of one at a time, small group in the yeah, beginning. Yeah, it was just really two proteins we were looking at and then variations on their amino acid sequences. But I think it was the following year, a graduate student named Kim Simons who, uh, who basically developed the first version of Rosetta because we had been getting ideas from these experiments and from other things that were going on at the time about sort of principles of protein folding that we could encode in a computer algorithm. That computer algorithm could then be applied to any sequence. It would just take as its input the amino acid sequence and output a three-dimensional structure. 
Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, what kinds of things would go into that algorithm? Things like the protein likes to settle into that lowest energy state possible. That's right. Like that. That's one. And another is that if you, if you think about um, the, the, pro, the, the protein sequence as a chain, that each, each sort of short segment of the chain um, doesn't have a single state that it goes into, but, there's, but it has a relatively small number. So it's like you have, as you go along the chain, each piece has some propensity to be in different types of local structures. And then it's like a jigsaw puzzle. How do you, you know, which, as, as the thing folds up and each of these little pieces is sampling through different possible structures, how do they come together so that the overall energy is as low as possible? That was basically the idea we tried to implement in a computer algorithm. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, but they all, they aren't static, right? Yeah, These so can, they, can, they can be dynamic. Yes, that's right. That's different right. conformational states. You've got to take that into account. That's right. So now the number of possible shapes yeah. gets pretty large. Yeah. And when you were alluding to what makes the problem hard, it's because of that number of states is extremely large. So it's very hard to sample through all the possibilities. In fact, it's impossible. So to solve the problem, you have to, re you have to sample lots of possibilities, but they have to be all within the plausible space. And so, um, so that's really what we worked out a way to do, to rapidly sample through the region of structures or the region of conformational space that a given protein sequence would likely adopt. And then for each of those to calculate the energy as accurately as we could. And then basically the predicted structure is in the structure that ha has the lowest energy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there are two problems. One problem is how do you do the sampling through this huge number of states? And the other problem is how do you calculate energies accurately? For the first part, we kept we you know started getting more and more computers and putting them in every nook and cranny we 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 could find, and uh, that ultimately led to uh, the Rosetta at Home project, where we enlisted volunteers from all around the world to uh, to, to help us do these calculations. Well, we'll get to that in a second. But like, what's the kind of the the prize here? It's sort of like I can imagine you working both backwards and forwards. Once you've got you know a DNA sequence or an amino acid sequence, you've got protein. Um, structure and function, you, you could you could work in both directions. You would know for sure with with some higher degree of certainty from the start uh, if you've got a protein like say IL two that does something that you want. You you could you know make that thing and make it do exactly what you want. Like yeah. were you thinking that? Oh, well, early? You're, you're now talking about design. Yeah. And really, at the early stage, we weren't really thinking so much about design. We were thinking about just working out the principles mm -hmm. and being able to predict what the structure of naturally occurring proteins was or is from their sequence. So design didn't come, it came, came later. Okay, okay, so, but back here in the 90s, um, you're, you're beginning to think computers could yes. be useful in because they're good at doing large volumes of calculations. Yeah, we have to search through these very large spaces and you, you need computers to do that. Uh, now, start talking to people like here in the Seattle community, like Microsoft or, or wherever, uh, or, or how did the computing, how did you bring computing resources to bear? Well, let's see. I had picked up some, some, some programming and computer experiments as a postdoc. Um, and uh, as I said, one of my first students, Kim Simons, had, had a, a computer science background. And then other people joined on because there weren't really many people doing this kind of thing. So... Uh, there were, you know, there were other students and postdocs who came who were really excited about the problem of predicting structure from sequence. 
And at that time, and actually still, there is there was a structure prediction experiment slash competition called CASP, where uh, crystallographers would contribute sequences of proteins that they had solved the structure of, uh, but not yet published. And then every every two years, they'd release the sequences, and everyone would try to make predictions. And uh, it was good timing for for my group because it turned out that our approach was one of the best that that one of the best in this. Um, line test. And so that then, then people or more people started wanting to come to solve the problem. Um, and, uh, that's what? when we started running out of computer time and we started Rosetta at home. Um, and, uh, was that the competition where I think you got something like 12 out of 20 structures, correct? Um, there were, you know, it's been every two years for the last uh, 26 years. So there's been many iterations. Um, but there were, there were a couple of the early ones where, uh, what we did really stood out and, um, that, that definitely helped uh, attract very smart, talented people. Precision Nanosystems is lowering the barriers to developing gene and advanced therapies. Precision Nanosystems is a global leader in technology and solutions for developing RNA, DNA, CRISPR, and small molecule drugs, rapidly taking ideas to patients. In working with over 100 biopharmaceutical companies globally, Precision Nanosystems' expertise and proprietary technology is at the heart of many of the leading gene therapies under development today. Precision Nanosystems' nanomedicine development and manufacturing platform and reagents provide outstanding reducibility, versatility, and scalability with an intuitive workflow that requires no prior expertise. Precision Nanosystems can partner with you to bring your programs to patients successfully. To learn more, please visit www.precisionnanosystems.com. Okay, so you've got computer resources here. It's a big state university, but um, you know there are other people on campus that yeah. want to use the the horsepower too. So you run up against uh, your limits, yeah. uh, and you decide, okay, I need to find some more compute power yeah. somewhere else. And this leads you to Rosetta at home. Yes. Uh, what was the idea there? Uh, well, let's see. So, first of all, we were at that time in the in the medical uh, the, the medical school building, and we had got a strict order that we cannot put any more computers in because we were heating up the building too much. And uh, so, we need to find another way. And uh, at that time, SETI at home, the search for intelligent life leaders, had gotten a lot of was was very uh, a very popular project. And we contacted them, and they very generously agreed to help us set up our own distributed computing project. Uh, they reasoned that uh, they had set up this amazing um, infrastructure and they thought it could be used for more than just, you know, finding uh, ET. <laughs> and um, this is, to for those unfamiliar, this is like my laptop, your laptop, everybody's computer that's, you know, sitting at home uh, dormant half the time when we're not yet running it. There's compute power there that can be connected, distributed, like effectively become like, a supercomputer. That's right. It's a very powerful supercomputer, in fact. And the way that we set up the calculations, uh, one, one analogy I like is if you imagine the landscape of possible shapes a protein could have as being something like the surface of a new planet. Um, one way you can search for the lowest energy structure, which would be akin to the lowest elevation point on this new planet, is to send a whole bunch of parachuters out to that planet and just have them parachute down and different random locations, then look around the area that they land and then report back 
what the lowest elevation point they found was. That would be one, one algorithm you could do to find the lowest elevation point on a new planet. Well, protein structure prediction, the way we approach it is really the same, except now each Rosetta at home participant is like one of those parachutists. They, they, we send them the sequence and we give, send them a random number and that random number specifies where they're gonna parachute down on this landscape. And then they, they look around in that area and they, they send back to us the lowest energy structure they find. Then we put them all together and uh, we can identify from that what the lowest energy structures that anyone sampled. And what we found was that um, uh, in, the, in the case where there was a small number of explorers who found much lower energy structures than anybody else, usually those were the correct answer. Interesting. So and what years are we talking now? This is sort of the mid-aughts. Let's see. This was that taking be... off. You're building that network with Rosetta at home. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's, um, you know, I'm not good with dates, but uh, that's probably the early 2000s. Yeah. And how many people ended up um, contributing? This well, way? a very large number of people have signed up. It's, it's, a very, it's a very active project. We are using it now uh, in a completely different way to try and design uh, better therapeutics and um, so, yes, for everyone out there who wants to contribute to what we're talking about, it's Rosetta at Home. I think many hundreds of thousands of people have signed up. And I think uh, I'm not sure what the current number of, of, of users per day is or contributors per day. But it's at, at, um, uh, last time I checked, it was upwards of 20 or 30,000. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So people, this is a way for people to contribute to science in their own small way. Oh, it's <laughs> a very big way. Yeah. That's how the majority of our computing gets done. And... Uh, we we communicate back to the contributors. Um, uh, you know, we describe what, what we're working on and what the problems that have been solved are. And uh, yeah, it's really an essential component of what we're doing. So you've got people now beginning to come work for you with computer skills. Yeah. You're you're casting a wider net in in into citizen science That's in right. the in the mid two thousands when this yeah. was just kind of becoming more of a thing. Yeah. Uh, and then then fold it is sort of the next step right. in that right. It's so a, the way that it's a game so that people can can participate a little more actively. That's than, right. That's than right. with Rosetta at home. So when you run, run Rosetta at home, a screensaver appears on your computer because it's, it's running as a, essentially like a screensaver. It's only running when you're not using your computer. And you see the protein folding up, but it's the computer doing it. So it's kind of randomly, you know, searching around. And people started writing in and saying that um, uh, they were watching the process of the computer pro folding the protein up on their screen, even though they weren't didn't know much about protein folding, they thought they could probably do a better job or at least guide the, if they could guide the computer. They were sort of frustrated because they just watched the, the protein dancing around and they couldn't really control it. So they wrote in suggesting this and that was really what led to, uh, the, to fold it, which now is very much like Rosetta at home in that we set up problems. But now rather than just having the computer do the random search, the um, uh, you as the folded player guide the computer. And at some at any point you have access to um, the Rosetta algorithms. So you can say, you know, search in this area or you can move everything around by yourself. Um, and so that, that was very exciting and it's gotten even more exciting recently uh, with protein design and we can come back to that later. Well, it's, um, you know, I think just about everybody who's seen a screensaver has probably seen what you described, this yeah. like folding uh, screensaver. It's visually interesting, even yeah. arresting, yeah. Uh, visually minded, even artistic people yeah. look at that and think, wait a minute, what's going on there? And, and imaginations start 
uh, firing <laughs> people's uh, all kinds of synapses of people yeah. out yeah. there but who do not work for your lab. How many people were using or playing Fold It? Like, or, well, again, or still we've had are. many. We've had many hundreds of thousands of people sign up, but there the steady state number of players is smaller because it's more of an investment. You have to really get into it, and it's competitive too because there's a leaderboard. And we're actually now now that folded players are making designs, we're going to the lab and testing them. So uh, the steady state number of play players right now is in the uh, several hundreds, and we're hoping to um, to grow that because we have a lot of really exciting uh, problems that uh, we'd love to get. Uh, both full Rosetta at home participants to contribute to through the spare cycles on their computers, as well as um, as well as you know, full the players with their brains. So now all of this stuff was happening. You've got a couple trends like computing is getting more powerful, faster, efficient yeah. in the late two thousands. Citizen science, you're finding a clever way to harness it yeah. in a way that most academic labs don't or can't. Uh, I remember uh, this is around the time I had profiled you about 10 years ago. Yeah. I'm talking with you know, startup companies and they're like, you, you, had, uh, you had some application ideas for new kinds of proteins that could be designed uh, with some of the tools that you now had for all kinds of purposes, like industrial enzymes, for instance, to break down things like corn stalks instead of just corn kernels if you want to make ethanol. That's one. Um, you know, Arzeda was another company. Bioarchitecture Lab were a couple yeah. that are early companies. Uh, what uh, what was your kind of suite of capabilities at that time for designing proteins? Well, I have to go back a little bit earlier to answer that question. So, as I said, in the '90s, we were really focused on on um, going from amino acid sequence to protein structure. Then uh, Brian Coleman came as a postdoc to my lab uh, with the idea of of turning things around that instead of going from sequence to structure, you could go from new structure back to sequence. Um, and that's the protein design problem. So he incorporated protein design capabilities into Rosetta, which at, the, at that point had just been going from sequence to structure. And now you could go both ways, from mm -hmm. sequence to structure and then structure back to sequence. And he showed, um, working with uh, graduate students in the lab, that uh, could actually design new proteins that um, uh, uh, new sequences that folded up into new structures. So that and that was in um, uh, that was in the early 2000s. The, the first um, demonstration of that was published in 2003. So then at that point we had we we saw that we could design proteins and we focused um, at that point on designing protein functions. For example, enzymes, as you said, uh, and that work led to um, the. Uh, the design of enzymes that um, uh, that catalyzed uh, chemical reactions that weren't catalyzed in nature, and that though that some of those people spun out the company Arzeda that you described, and another postdoc spun out a bioarchitecture lab, and um, uh, other people in the group looked at protein-protein interactions, um, and we also started a big effort on vaccines. We using um, uh, Bill Sheaf. Uh, uh, came to my group and after several years decided to focus on the design of HIV vaccines and that became very exciting. That was the first time that we partnered with the Gates Foundation. So, um, uh, so at, I would there's just, a whole lot of different applications. Yes. If you start thinking about, okay, I can design proteins right. that don't exist in nature that 
but I can determine what their function is. Like I can start doing just about anything you want, theoretically. Yes. But, you know, you, you got to start somewhere, right. somewhere that's tractable. So where did you, how did you prioritize? Was it around yeah. things that were like short and relatively easy protein structures? I, I think it was really, um, let's see, it was where there was... Um, where there was really a, a, a big need was part of it and where we thought we could make an impact. For example, HIV vaccines, clearly a critical problem. Um, enzymes, being able to make new catalysts, clearly a, a critical problem. And then also being able to design proteins to bind to proteins of known structure, potentially new therapeutics was a critical problem. So, and then, so sort of a combination of what's, what's, if we wanna make the world a better place, what are the problems that need to be solved? And then with our capabilities, what can we solve? Um, and that was really, that went throughout um, uh, up to about um, eight or nine years ago. And uh, at that point, during that time, it's kind of interesting. We didn't do too much, during the, the mid 2000s, we didn't do too much work on designing brand new structures. What we really did primarily is take existing protein structures that were in the PDB and then design them to have new functions. So you've for got example, a good starting template. You have a good starting template. And now, for example, if we want to design a new enzyme, we would describe and develop a description of an ideal catalytic site and then search through naturally occurring protein structures for, um, for places to build that site. And then we would make the protein. Um, similarly, for vaccine design, we would... Um, uh, figure out what part of HIV we wanted to scaffold, and then we would um, uh, um, build it onto some naturally occurring scaffolds. And similarly for, for design of binders. So um, what happened though, is that there were at, um, in around uh, 2008, 2009, um, uh, a postdoc came, uh, Nobuyasu Kogu, and Koga, and um, he wanted to get back to the original de novo design problem of structure regardless of function. So at that point, it seemed like, well, why would anyone want to go back to design just structures when we're designing all these exciting functions? And um, he worked out some general principles for designing proteins more systematically from scratch. And at about that time, or over the next four years, um, it became clear that we were going to be limited in the extent we could design proteins with new functions if we always just started with protein scaffolds, which existed in nature, for a number of reasons. First of all, despite the diversity in nature, it's tiny compared to what the total number of possible sequences are. So there's even for a hundred residue protein with 20 amino acids, there's 10 to the, there's, there's, um, uh, um, there's over 10 to the 130th possible sequences and nature's probably only sampled on the order of 10 to the 15, 10 to the 20. That's so how many we know? That's how many, well, that's how many have probably existed on earth since life began. But how many we know? How is, many we know is tiny yeah. compared to that. Yeah. Um, it's in the, you know, it's in the 10 to the ninth kind of range. Um, maybe 10 to the 11th. Uh, so um, that was one problem. The other problem was that since these were naturally occurring sequences, which have evolved over many, 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 you know, millennia, obviously, um, there were a lot of things in them that we didn't really understand. And they were kind of all historical accidents. And so it was a little bit like what, what we were doing was a little bit like, you know, early humans would go outside their cave, find out, figure out what was around them, like bones and sticks, and then fashion implements from them. And that's really how protein engineering had been done up to that time. So what we reasoned was if we really went back to the drawing board and learned how to make proteins systematically from scratch, then our capabilities 
would, would expand enormously. Because then when we wanted to go to design new functions, we would be able to build things from scratch to have that function rather than trying to repurpose something which already existed. And that was a big transition again that started around uh, uh, 2011, 2000, um, and that's uh, and that really um, so it seemed like a big step back, but actually it turns out to have been it was a it was a temporary step back which then enabled a big leap forward, which is really what led to the Institute for Protein Design, because what we found is we could in fact uh, design very large numbers of proteins completely from scratch. And there were a couple other trends that helped out with this. You didn't need to start with a template. We didn't need you to start could, with a template anymore. You could anymore. start truly yeah. from scratch. That's right. And that was, that was really the big enabler. Um, and uh, so the things that made that possible, first of all, we had continued to develop Rosetta and we not only the computer algorithms, but sort of the basic fundamental understanding of the principles of folding kept improving. And as you said, computers kept getting more powerful. So when you start from scratch, you wanna make a lot of things from scratch. You need a lot of compute time. And then finally, the cost of making synthetic DNA kept dropping and dropping. And that was really important because if you're gonna make something from scratch, uh, there's no gene that exists in nature that will encode that protein. So every new protein you wanna make, you've got to make a synthetic gene. And uh, so companies like GenScript, Agilent, Twist, uh, developed improved methods for making large numbers of genes and uh, the cost kept coming down. So that let us, and lets us still today, uh, make really large numbers of design proteins. You can order them up and get them yeah, in effects. You don't right. need to make them right. yourself down the hall. That's right, yeah. So it's important to recognize that, you know, the this this progress in protein design that we've had is it's not just from the advances we've made. We've really, we're at the right time and place historically because gene synthesis, coming out of the genome project, you know, the methods have just gotten drastically better. Computing is really at the first time at really at the scale where you can do this. So it's a lot of things all coming together. It's a confluence of factors. It's a confluence of factors. That's right. Together with an understanding of the of biomedicine where, you know, now it's a little clearer what um, we have had antibodies now for, you know, for um, 20 some years. And so we see their strengths. We see the power of biologics. We also see some of the limitations. Um, and so it's, um, yeah, it's just, it's a very exciting time now. Now you've mentioned a few different potential applications. There yeah. are many, many yeah. potential applications. You need to partner with lots of different kinds of organizations right. to achieve even half of these objectives. Uh, I want to talk just about a couple since this is a biotech podcast. Yeah. Um, they're, they're taking the form of startup companies with yes. staffed by former students and postdocs. Right. Icosavax is one yes. and Neolucan Therapeutics is another. Yeah. Maybe you want to start with Neolucan. So this is modifying IL-2, interleukin-2. This has been around for decades, kind of the original immunotherapy uh, recombinant protein, um, has some problems with uh, excessive toxicity, but for, I don't know, 10% or so of patients with melanoma, it provokes a pretty strong anti-tumor immune response. So like there is a starting template that probably, you know, you're looking at that and thinking, boy, if we, if we could modify this, that, or other element of it, um, maybe, maybe we can make a better one. Is that, is that where that one came well, from? That would have been our approach in the two thousands. Okay. But in the, uh, 2010s, um, it became strictly forbidden in my group to start with anything that exists in nature. We, everything had to be built from first principles. Throw and out your, been, your dogmas or I've your... been, I've been accused of being very dogmatic. Uh, <laughs> uh 
In fact, uh, if people in group meeting ever uh, talk about doing any design starting with a, uh, a naturally occurring protein, they have to refer to the protein as Neanderthal with an implication about themselves too, because <laughs> okay. they're just starting with something they found, you know, in the environment around them. Well, let's see. Well, so, so starting with first principles, how do you arrive okay. at so, a, a, an improved IL-2? Right. So what we did is we looked at IL-2 and one of the, one of the um, hypotheses about toxicity is that IL-2 uh, interacts um, uh, with multiple receptor subunits. There's a beta, gamma, and an alpha subunit. And the beta and gamma subunits are on effector T cells. So if you stimulate that, them, then uh, you, amp up the, you amp up the killer T cells and that's what you want. The alpha subunit is primarily on regulatory T cells. And a lot of the toxicity was thought to be or is thought to be mediated through interactions with um, the alpha, beta, gamma subunit uh, complex. Um, and that could also have antagonizing effects. These regulatory T cells can dampen uh, um, effector T cell function. So we wanted to design something that would engage the beta and gamma subunits of the interleukin-2 receptor without uh, engaging the alpha subunit at all. And people in the past had tried the approach you, you suggested of looking at the structure and then tweaking it so that it didn't bind alpha. But those approaches never worked very well. They always retained some alpha subunit binding. Also, uh, uh, interleukin-2, which was never meant to be used as a, a therapeutic, is not a particularly well-behaved stable protein. So when they mucked with it, the protein got hard to make and stuff. So what we want to do is build proteins completely from scratch that folded up into very stable structures that would engage the beta and gamma subunits, but not the alpha subunit. And that was, so that was building up structures from, again, from scratch. And, um, uh, and uh, so Daniel Silva did that work when he was a postdoc here, working with a number of other people in the group. And uh, we, we really started off doing that really as a test of sort of large scale protein design. That was one of the first uh, studies where we took advantage of this ability to do really large scale um, uh, synthesis. And, um, uh, but so, so we got very stable proteins that bind, bound beta and gamma with very high affinity, didn't bind alpha. And then we started to collaborate with other academic groups to look at the effect of these molecules uh, in um, first in cell culture on signaling. And uh, we did that with Chris Garcia's group and then uh, in animal models. Um, and uh, it, it, it was started looking amazingly effective. We cured mice of cancer many times. So you start talking with your immunology or right. cancer biology colleagues right. in the community and they're That's like, right. wow, this we'll is actually, it. this is getting a, the effector T cell function right. that we want without all that other stuff that causes the toxicity exactly that has right. been the bugaboo of IL-2 forever. Yeah, yeah. So we launched um, Neolucan uh, last January. And uh, as you probably know, it's had an interesting uh, uh, progression since then. Um, it's now a public company through a reverse merger and uh, it's going, you know, full guns. Brought in. Bring into the clinic. Jo Jonathan Drachman, yeah. formerly uh, head of R&D at Seattle Genetics, yeah. a, a credible guy, yeah. um, a, you know, scientific mind. He's going to try and develop that uh, yeah. with that team, Daniel Silva and others. Yeah, we're super, super lucky to uh, entice Jonathan to, uh, to lead this effort. So that is, uh, that's now a public company that's come out of here. Now, another one, Icosavax, that's more recent uh, venture-backed uh, opportunity here. Uh, tell me about this, uh, this idea you're thinking about a universal flu vaccine. How would you, right where, now, where does that start? Right. So that's work um, by my colleague, uh, Neil King, working closely with the Vaccine Research Center at the NIH. Um, 
So what Icosavax is really focused on is um, uh, not flu, but uh, respiratory syncytial virus and other indications. Uh-huh. Um, and so there's there are uh, and that's that's following up on um, a vaccine candidate that uh, that uh, Neil's group developed that's looking very promising indeed. That's eliciting much stronger um, immune responses against RSV than um, uh, than previous the best previously described candidates. And it's all based on sort of on technology for designing. We didn't really talk about this, but one of the things we've really been looking at over the last 10 years is designing proteins that assemble into different types of three-dimensional structures, ranging from unbounded one-dimensional wires, which we're very interested in for, you know, kind of electronics applications, to two-dimensional layers, and then to closed polyhedra. And uh, the vaccine candidates that Icosavax is developing are based on um, icosahedral nanoparticles that present many copies of the immunogen to the immune system. And uh, we've shown over and over again that this highly multivalent uh, display elicits a much stronger immune response. This is what you call the, the death star? The death star. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have a big partnership now with the Gates Foundation, really applying this technology to a wide variety of different um, uh, uh, diseases, for example, malaria um, and HIV in addition to um, RSV and flu. So over the years, people have talked about subunit vaccines or DNA vaccines, yeah. you know, and they're supposed to you know, stimulate the uh, anti-pathogen immunity, but they just haven't been able to provoke a strong enough immune response, by and large. These things haven't worked. Yeah. You guys have looked at this, again, from the first principles. Can you create that, that icosahedral the 3D structure, and then attach all of these antigens, not just one or two, but multiple, multiple strains potentially of RSV are now, you're educating the immune system to, to recognize. Is that is that correct? That's right. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And um, just uh, so we, so I remember to, to bring it up, the other thing we've been working on a lot in the last couple of years is proteins that can do logic operations, logic calculations. And so there are many situations in, in um, therapeutics where you'd like to be able to uh, do a calculation and then, then decide on an outcome. And so we, we published a few papers this summer on the first such systems. And there are a couple new companies that um, are hoping to really exploit that technology um, in a big way for adoptive cell therapies, which we're very excited about. Interesting. How many partner organizations do, do you work with? Well, a lot. And it's, it's very exciting. Again, I, I talked about being at the right time and place and in, in history for this problem. And I think because of that, um, if you looked at a network of, of, um, of this place and our interactions with the outside world, it's, it really goes everywhere. I mean, I get we have people here. If you just walk around, you'll see there are people from really all over the world coming in. And then the collaborations the scientific collaborations academically are really are again spread out really globally. Um, the spinouts we try and uh, we try and really uh, localize in Seattle. I have this sort of dream of building up really a whole new Seattle uh, uh, biotech industry, and we're spinning out. Um, I think we're at about two companies a year. It's been about eight companies in the last four years. So it's really exciting. We're developing this whole ecosystem now. We haven't even talked about, you know, the industrial applications, things like self-assembling uh, cell uh, proteins that capture sunlight, right, convert right, it into yeah. energy yes, in a more right. efficient way than, right. you know, classic solar panels. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah, and it's all and the the you can if you think about the huge number of problems that biology has solved with proteins, just sort of by random chance through evolution. Like you said, what is what is what do proteins do in biology? Well, they convert solar energy into into biological work. They convert it into chemistry. Um, they obviously, you know, they're proteins that interact with other with cells in incredibly complex ways. So basically, in medicine and materials, energy. Uh, even computing, all of these areas are ones where you could imagine applications for proteins. And so it's really exciting now. And we're, we're fortunate now in being able to explore a lot of these areas. And um, I think a lot of the best and the brightest from the world around the world are coming here to pursue their dreams in this area. And so it's really a very exciting place to be. You got this big grant, um, audacious project grant yeah. from Ted or Ted yeah. sort of organized this thing. Yeah. What's that? Uh, it's five years, 45 million bucks or something like yeah. that. What's that enabling you to do that you couldn't before? Well, it's, it's enabling a lot of things. So we are building up uh, in-house capabilities that we never had before in uh, really across a wide range of areas. So we've, we've all, you know, collaborations are great, but sometimes you need to do things at a higher bandwidth than you can. So structural biology and crystallography, electron microscopy, uh, micro light microscopy, um, and then um, uh, this sort of larger scale vaccine production, uh, mammalian cell culture for, we're very excited about, about now about developing um, super agonists that, um, that act on cells in new ways. There's another industry which we didn't talk about, the food and the artificial meat industry. Food is basically protein. Right. You should be able to design better food, more nutritious. Um, proteins are going to be produced at higher levels. Um, and then we've been able to, we're able to scale. What we proposed in the Audacious project was to develop the Bell Labs of protein design, you know, where we just have really, you know, super smart people coming and, you know, developing the next generation of things. And we are... Um, we're in fact training people at an enormous rate. And a lot of the people are, a new thing is it used to be that ambitious people leaving here all wanted to start faculty positions. Now increasingly people are deciding to, to found companies in Seattle, like like uh, like Neil Lucan. And, um, and it's very exciting. And I think it's, you know, as, you'll, as your audience will totally appreciate, I think ultimately the impact of what we're doing will really be seen through what all of these companies that come out of here do, because we can't, we're not gonna develop a drug or a vaccine candidate completely in-house. Right. Well, that's not the job of academia. Right. right. And that, so, that just yeah. takes a long time to yeah. Yeah, uh, really bear fruit. And, and uh, yeah, but we're starting to see the first, um, the first companies have uh, some very exciting results. Um, and uh, uh, yeah. So it's, now, how does this change the way you go about your work? Because, you know, when you're a beginning faculty member 25 years ago, it's probably just you and a couple graduate <laughs> yeah. students, right? Yeah, it was With, just me at the beginning. Yeah. Right, right, right. And yeah. now you've got, I don't know, 130 people or something like this? Yeah, the IPD, I think there's now 150 people. There's five faculty. We now have, um, as I mentioned, sort of research staff so that we can do a lot of the initial characterization of design proteins in-house but very advanced computing staff and, and resources. So it's really like being a kid in the candy store. I mean, there's so many things that you can do here. Um, uh, and, but you know, I, 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 my life hasn't changed so much. I mean, we have very effective, um, uh, 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 sort of, uh, like Lance Stewart, um, who's our, our senior director of strategy. He really, um, uh, you know, he's thinking about the, the translational stuff and he's also has a, 
really, really um, great view on the operations. So I actually spend most of my day doing talking about science with people in my group. I get a little bit of time to work on my own project, which I always like to have. So I actually gave group meeting last Monday, which was very stressful. And now I'm free for another three months and I have to come up with something that I can present in front of my group and not embarrass myself. Uh, group meeting as yeah. in like some of my own experimental here's, data. Here's what I did. Yeah, here's what yeah. I did. So, um, yeah, so I, I think for me, I get to do the part I really enjoy, which is the science and, you know, there's, it's fun. It's, there's like, for me, it's another way of being a kid in the candy store. There are all these super smart, super energetic people here. So I'll, after we're done, I'll walk around and see if anyone discovered anything exciting this morning. And so is that what you do management by walking around? I just walk around. Hewlett yeah. Packard method. <laughs> yeah. I just walk around. Yeah. I, the one thing is, um, I have sort of strong opinions on the sociology of scientific creativity. I don't, I think hierarchy is really bad. So it's, which I have a totally flat organizational structure. So that's why I have my own project. I have to give group meeting. Um, and, um, you know, anyone here, an undergraduate or a new graduate student can come up with a great idea and they'll be recognized. And also I really believe people, um, I think great ideas come when people are working close to each other and talking. So if you walk around the lab, you'll see everyone's talking to everybody all the time. So it gets a little crazy, but, um, but this is you thinking like a manager. This isn't like uh, I'm I'm the the guy with all the ideas and it's all got to go through me. Right, right. Or I don't believe in the scientist on on the mountaintop. I like climbing mountains, but that's uh, <laughs> that's um, I don't really believe in that picture. I think ideas come from people talking and working together. I get a lot of my best ideas come from just talking to people about their projects or or you know wander around the lab and talk to two, two or three people and then get some idea and bring them together and then they'll develop it or they'll have their own idea. So it's, um, it's very fluid. What do you uh, read on a regular basis to um, stay flexible and open to lots of these kinds of possibilities? Yeah, well, you know, I get, I get thousands of emails every day from people all over the world proposing new ideas and collaborations for protein design. Um, and, uh, I'm pretty strict about email. I do it first thing in the morning and last thing at night, because as you know, it can be a sink. So I can, that's one way information comes in. Also the people coming through here are coming from all over the world with ideas of problems. And then people here are reading things. So I, in no way, that's the idea of a flat organization. Like there's no way where I, I would be a total bottleneck you know, <laughs> in terms of if all ideas had to come through me. So, you know, people go to meetings, they'll hear about things and they're just constant discussions. Um, so it's really a question of, you know, I make I just, one of my things, I just try and make sure everybody's talking to everybody all the time and we have a steady stream of outside speakers coming through. So, um, but that's an important question. This was something that Phil Sharp brought up on a recent podcast of mine. He says, you are what you read. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, and to, to keep yourself open to all of, you've shown a lot of breadth. Yeah. Uh, with being open to computation and open to citizen science to help you tackle this hard problem of protein folding yeah. back in the beginning. Uh, you know, there's a there's a balance there, though, to, you know, you don't want to be open to everything because then, yeah, well, then you'll be like, you'll, you'll be bogged down in you know paralysis by analysis. Yeah, well, it's interesting, though. My group meeting on Monday was about deep learning. I decided, I, you know, deep learning is obviously looking very powerful. I had to learn something about it. So I decided to dive in and do a deep learning project, which has been really exciting. So I think you, you know, as in science, there's constant development. So you always have to reinvent yourself and, and go in and just new things. So
so we're, and that's one of the things that's fun about it for me is it's constantly changing. Um, and then there's also the interesting thing, whereas I keep getting older, but everyone in the group stays the same age because <laughs> they're always graduate students and postdocs. So it's a big privilege for me to be working with such uh, uh, smart, energetic people with um, so much in front of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would you predict will be the the near term applications, the, the big ones that will make, uh, you know, the, the front page of the paper, if we still have papers, you know, yeah, 10 years from so. now? <laughs> well, you know, I'm always loath to predict uh, the future. I think predicting the progress of science and technology is is a very, uh, very um, uh, difficult and 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 perhaps almost um, uh by construction, impossible thing to do because it's innovation. How do you predict the, the course of innovation? Innovation is almost by definition things you couldn't have thought of six months earlier. And so in general, when I think about our research, you know, I'm happiest if what I'm doing at a given at, on a given day is something I couldn't have conceived of a year earlier. Um, but I think if we look at the spin outs coming through, um, I think, you know, the areas where we'll certainly get a lot of feedback in the next couple of years are design proteins as therapeutics like Neo2, design proteins as vaccines, um, design proteins as, uh, uh, as cell control systems, you know, like with, with uh, Lyle and Sana using these things now. So we'll get, we're going to get, uh, we're going to get a readout about the uses of these proteins in medicine where some of the problems we're working on now are uh, the problem of mineralization. So in biology, we have you know, abalone shells, we have bone and tooth. You know, proteins are somehow, biology has figured out how to use proteins to um, get inorganic minerals to deposit. Suppose we could do that with proteins. We're working on that now. So as you get semiconductor crystals to be to form in patterned ways, um, if, that, if we can succeed with that, that could really transform the whole industry. Um, so I think the short term, the things we're going to get a readout in the short term are um, primarily medicine, but then with our Zeta making great strides in, um, in uh, catalysis and um, uh, you know, in chemistry producing, um, producing compounds, that'll be another interesting area. Uh, so I think it's gonna be very exciting because you know, the spin outs will push stuff that's more mature and we're supposed to be an engine of discovery and innovation here and People, I think, will continue to spin. We have a couple new companies that will be spinning out in the next six months. And I think that will you know, we'll continue to push the frontier of knowledge and technology and spin those things out. And you know, so it's, it's going to be very exciting. Are the more mature areas the ones where more of the biology itself has been worked out? So, for instance, like IL-2 for cancer, yeah. you know, yeah. there's a lot of understanding now about the tumor immune system interaction there. There's a, there's a contextual backdrop that you can operate in when designing a brand new protein. You, you kind of know what properties you want. You just described them earlier. That's a super important point you're making. Yeah. Whereas like if you look at something like Alzheimer's, for instance, yeah. where like the pathophysiology of the disease itself is still like we're working on that. Like how would you even begin yeah. to design something optimally? Yeah, no, that's an extremely good point. And when I when I mentioned earlier that it was a confluence of things, one of the things I should have mentioned is that our understanding of biology and molecular biology has gotten to the point where we can pinpoint specific targets where, if, for example, if you had a high affinity binding protein, you might cause you might cure disease. And so, and you're right, interleukin-2, the interleukin-2 receptor is an is an excellent target, it's validated, um, uh, whereas Alzheimer and Alzheimer's is much more difficult because we're not sure really where to target. So with protein design, uh, you know, we can, we, you know, we have control over on the biochemical individual molecule level, but it doesn't help in cases where you don't understand the biology well enough to 
like you have to be able to come up with the specifications of an ideal protein and what its properties would be, uh, where if you could build that, you would have a good chance of curing disease. And in, it requires a more advanced molecular understanding of the, of, the, of the disease in the case of medicine. I saw one article about you recently where you said you don't travel very much. Uh, but And this is an important point, I think, that speaks to how you manage your time. We touched on it earlier. Uh, do you... Do you say no to a lot of those kinds of requests? David, come speak halfway. I'm sure you get it all the time. Come speak yeah. all around the world. I probably get a couple of invitations to go somewhere every day. And um, it's just not it's not feasible. I mean, I I would like to, but I feel like, you know, I have a big group here and um, I feel like my job is here and um, I also have my own project. But um, I I um, it's not a very, very efficient use of my time to go get on a plane, uh, travel somewhere, you know, and give a talk, which I've already heard because it's my talk and I might uh, meet a few people and then come back. Also, I'm a little concerned about, you know, releasing CO2 into the atmosphere, which you do on every trip, obviously. And so, um, yeah, I really try and stay here as uh, I basically I, I try and be here every day. And you don't feel like you're missing out on kind of that intellectual cross fertilization that happens at a lot of conferences. Um, you know, I, I could be to some extent, but it's always a balance, you know, and it's, um, I feel like, uh, you know, I encourage people in my group to go to meetings and have those sort of interactions. But um, I, uh, I feel like my, my real work is here. And um, I mean, it's good to go out every once in a while. Like I said, it's important to stay open and learn new things. But, uh, but ultimately, you know, I'm, we're at the stage now where the, the, the question is, is actually going out and solving problems rather than just, so like I said, you just can't keep taking information in. And there are other sources of ways of getting information in. So it's really just, you know, every moment is precious. And uh, if I almost invariably, when I come back from a trip, the next day when I'm walking around the lab talking to people, I just feel, gosh, it's so, so much more exciting here. Why did I ever leave? <laughs> <laughs> Fascinating stuff, David. I hope people listen to this 100 years from now and yeah. say, wow, this is where those all those proteins came yeah. from. <laughs> David Baker, thank you for joining me today on The Long Run. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.